What did it take to survive an ancient siege? Why was the cult of Dionysus behind so many slave revolts in ancient Rome? What's the tragic history and mythology behind Japan's most haunted ancient forest? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. Join us to explore ancient history and mythology from a fun, sometimes tipsy perspective. Find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome back to the Egyptian History Podcast, The History of Egypt, Episode 62, Holy of Holies, being Part 2 in our series on the greatest queen king of Egyptian history, the one and only Ma'at Ka-Reh Hatshepsut. This episode is brought to you by George Wood, Keith Edwards, and Malim Bo'alwan, in gratitude for their support. Enjoy the show, folks. This one is for you. Today's episode takes place over just one year. That year is 1488 BCE, give or take. At this point, Tutmos III has been king of Egypt for seven years. For all of that time, his aunt, Hatshepsut, has governed in his name. Now, the queen has made a surprising move. She has stepped forward into the political spotlight and set herself up as king in her own right. Egypt now has two rulers, one a child and one an experienced woman of powerful influence. What happens next? Let's find out. To begin with, Hatshepsut set out the official story of her rise to power. How had it come into her hands? She needed to answer that question in order to secure her legacy and make sure that her version was the official version, the one that everyone knew. The tale was simple enough. Hatshepsut claimed her inheritance from her father, Tutmos I. Sounds simple, right? That's just primogenitor but it was complicated by the fact that Hatshepsut's dad had clearly made his son, Tutmos II, Hatshepsut's late husband, his heir. He hadn't named her his heir, but that is exactly what Hatshepsut was claiming, and she said that, despite the existence of Tutmos II, her father had really wanted her to rule, and that everything which happened since Tutmos I died was in fact a part of her reign. Quote, Tutmos I saw in Hatshepsut the majesty of Horus, how great is her divine maker! Her heart is glad, for great is her crown. She advocates her cause in Ma'at, who praises her royal dignity, and that which her Ka does. His Majesty Tutmos I said to her, Come, glorious one, I have placed thee before me for a purpose, that thou may see thy government in the palace, that thou may assume thy royal dignity, glorious in thy magic, mighty in thy strength. Tutmos then summons the court, apparently, remember, this is all a story made up by Hatshepsut, and notifies them of his decision. Quote, Tutmos caused that there be brought to him the dignitaries, the nobles, the companions, the officers of the court, and the chiefs of the people. His majesty said before them, This is my daughter. I have appointed her. She is my successor upon my throne. She shall command the people in every place of the palace. It is she who shall lead you. Nice and straightforward, eh? A polite and political fiction. But does it have any truth? Almost certainly not. Hatshepsut's early career was conventional. She was given a cursory scribal education, and then appointed as a priestess in the Temple of Karnak. It was her brothers, the late Amunmos and Wajmos, who should have taken the throne ahead of her and her brother Tutmos II. There were three males ahead of the queen, and it was only good fortune that she outlived them, 
to take a place she would otherwise never have held. But power is rarely about truth, and often about making a narrative that will be accepted by the most people. Hatshepsut seems to have recognised this fact, and she played with it skillfully. The result was that, in year 7 of Tadmose III, Hatshepsut took the throne of Egypt with scarcely a whimper of opposition. Part of this silence was self-interest. Courtiers had been made wealthy by the Queen during her regency, so their interests were in her favour. The second was simple pragmatism. Hatshepsut was the most powerful figure in the court, and opposition that might have crystallised around Tutmose III was simply not forthcoming. Why exactly? We may never know. It is possible that there was a quiet arrangement between the various interest groups. Or Hatshepsut may even have promised Tutmose that she had no intention of denying him his rule, only delaying it somewhat while he grew to maturity. For the young king, still just a little boy, there really was not much choice. Now, once Hatshepsut had actually taken office, her first priority was to decide her public image, and how she fit into the scheme of things, considering there was still another king. This was relatively simple, really. There was a precedent for having two kings on the throne at once, thanks to the co-regencies of the Middle Kingdom. And as long as the court and nobility accepted Hatshepsut's personal authority, there was no real issue in her taking power. The issues that did exist were mostly public formalities, and they mostly centred on the king's gender. The gender, and I stress gender rather than biological sex, was easily fixed. Hatshepsut had been laying the groundwork for this for some time. Before she took the throne officially, her craftsmen and artisans began to adjust images of the queen to have a less feminine, more androgynous look. Statues and reliefs were modified so that her breasts became smaller, her waist became thicker, and her costume slowly switched from dresses to robes, and finally to kilts. Over the course of about three years or so, Hatshepsut's images became less feminine and more masculine. Finally, the pretense was gone, and Hatshepsut's images became entirely male. In effect, Hatshepsut conducted a two to three year gender realignment, altering her public image from the blatantly female to the blatantly male. There are a series of four statues kept in the Metropolitan Museum of Art which show this process. The first of them, the earliest, shows Hatshepsut as a woman, flat belly, prominent breasts, and wearing a long dress down to her ankles. The second shows a similar situation, but now her breasts are smaller and her stomach less flat. The third, her breasts are closer to masculine pectorals, and her dress is now gone, replaced by a kilt. Finally, the fourth shows her as a man, only the slightest hints of her true sex are visible. A fascinating process, which we almost never get to see in Egyptian artwork. The reason for this is simple. Kings had always been male. To break with that tradition in private was one thing. To break it in the public space, that was altogether different. So Hatshepsut the Queen became Hatshepsut the King, in a truly fascinating procedure. Now that she was king, one of two ruling over the country, her world stretched from Palestine to Nubia, and people of many races were submissive to her authority. The fact that this authority was traditionally wielded by a man, and traditionally by just one king, seemed to be no issue, for she had consolidated her position very well. Opposition was silent, and the court was at her beck and call, so what was she planning to do with it? Well, Hatshepsut had a number of projects underway by the time she became king, Early on, she did the cliched thing and led a military expedition into Nubia, 
flexing her political muscle and proving her worth to the army. After that, she began work on monuments in Thebes and throughout Egypt, a whole spate of building projects that would completely transform the architectural landscape of the country. In time, these building works would make Hatshepsut one of the most prolific and well-attested leaders in Egyptian history. So what better way for us to start delving into the reign of Hatshepsut than to explore one of these monuments in detail? We'll get into some others down the line, but really there is nowhere else to start than on the west bank of Thebes. Here, Hatshepsut commissioned herself a mortuary temple, a monument to herself and to Amun, that would shine in splendour throughout eternity. This monument was named Jesser Jesseru, but we know it better today as the Great Temple of Deir al-Bahari. Come, let's take a walk. We are in the west bank of Thebes. It is dawn, and an assembly of priests, officials, architects and foremen are standing in the shadow of a valley. The sun is rising, banishing the night's cold air, and the work is about to begin. Two individuals step forward. One is the king, Ma'at Kare Hatshepsut. The other is a priest in the service of Amun. He holds a cord of string, and his role is the most important in the whole ceremony. Using this red string, together with the king, he will demarcate the boundary of the temple and initiate the first phase of construction. For Hatshepsut, it is a moment of great solemnity. The cord is red, having been dipped in paint. This will make an impression on the stone and mark the outline of the structure. The priest and Hatshepsut stretch it out across the space. The perimeter is now ready. With the area demarcated, priests walk around the perimeter, sprinkling water and waving burning incense. This purifies the space, making it ready for the god to take up residence. All must be done carefully, with prayers uttered at every point, until the site is ready for the sacred and the mystical. Of course, these acts are largely symbolic. Neither the priest nor the king are architects or builders, and while they have an important part to play in the ritual, it is just that, a ritual. The proper, serious construction work will be initiated after the rituals, but for now, the important deeds are all religious. As the priests and the king circumnavigate the area, they also draw a hoe behind them to make a furrow. This is the first foundation trench, and it forms the first part of the construction. Hatshepsut makes a ditch, and with the aid of labourers and foremen, she then gathers a bucket of sand in order to symbolically refill this ditch. Doing this may seem pointless, but it is important. It marks the beginning of the foundations, a ritual recreation of the actual work which will soon begin. Essentially, Hatshepsut is performing a miniature and accelerated version of the actual construction process. Add to this a few symbolic mud bricks, as she now does, and the building is underway. By the end of the ritual, she has symbolically constructed the temple in a sacred and symbolic sense. After that, the only thing needed is the actual masonry. But before the ritual was completed, there was one final act to be done. This was the foundation deposit, an incredibly important task. Hatshepsut and the priests dig holes beneath each of the four corners of the complex. There, they buried items, model artifacts, relating to the construction and the temple. Among the artifacts buried at Deir al-Bahari and later discovered there were alabaster jars for sacred oils, wooden stakes and hose for digging, plaques bearing the name of the king, both Hatshepsut and Tutmos III, 
and a variety of small commemorative objects like scarabs. Put together, they made for one impressive assembly, and you can see some images of these on our website and Facebook page. The ritual of foundations was now complete, and the construction work could begin. Architects and labourers would now begin their work, and it would take them 15 years to build this magnificent temple. Let's jump ahead slightly and describe the temple itself in its completed form. Deir al-Bahari will be familiar to you if you've been paying attention at any point since the early Middle Kingdom. Back in the late 11th dynasty, Montuhotep II christened the site as a royal cemetery by commissioning a magnificent temple. In a series of colonnades and terraces, Montuhotep's builders erected a sophisticated, unique monument to the splendour of a now legendary king. Subsequently, kings of the 17th dynasty had built their tombs in this area, perhaps hoping to tap in to the legacy of their ancestor. It must have worked, because eventually that dynasty did enjoy great success by reuniting the kingdom. Now, decades after that event, Hatshepsut decided to return to Deir al-Bahari. She would build her monument near to that of Montuhotep II, and the valley would gain yet another landmark edifice to set it apart from other cemeteries. Hatshepsut christened her new temple Jesser Jesseru, which loosely translates to Holy of Holies. It is a slightly vague term. The monument is, quite simply, a masterpiece of Egyptian architecture. Its external symmetry is harmonious, and it is often compared to the Parthenon of Athens for the complexity of its iconography and its perfect construction. Well, I'm no architect or mathematician, but what I can tell you is that artistically, Hatshepsut and her architects developed something that hadn't quite been seen before. Jesser Jesseru looks simple enough from the outside. It is on an east-west axis so that it faces the sunrise. It has three levels which make terraces and three different courtyards. Boom. Done. But inside, the architecture and the artistic decoration convey a whole host of complex messages with a lot of important symbolism. By studying this temple in detail, Egyptologists have gained great insight into a whole host of cultural and religious ideas from this period. Let's focus on the obvious first, and then get into some other details in later episodes. First and foremost, what does the temple tell us about Hatshepsut herself? The first thing you should know is that Hatshepsut did not treat this temple as some kind of monument to herself, at least not entirely. She was sensible enough to focus Jesser Jesseru on Amun, and also to include her young co-ruler, Tutmos III, in many artistic scenes. Anyone looking at the temple would be hard-pressed to say that Hatshepsut was presenting herself as the sole king of Egypt, or that she was stepping outside of her traditional boundaries. In fact, the temple is remarkable for just how close to the traditional status quo it sticks. Let's dive in. To begin with, Hatshepsut's temple is not just one temple. It has a bunch of small shrines built into it and alongside it. Shrines to Ra, to Hathor, and to Anubis feature in the architecture, along with offering spaces for Hatshepsut's statues, and for Tutmos III. So it incorporates a more complex religious atmosphere than Montuhotep's next door. If Montuhotep's temple is kind of a straightforward and direct dedication to the king and to Amun, Hatshepsut's temple incorporates a number of other deities in order to really double down on that sacredness that holy of holies idea. It also helps to make her temple the religious centre of the area. If you need to worship one of these gods, that is where you'd go. Hatshepsut was playing for everlasting fame and endurance, 
Part of that meant ensuring that her monuments remained in use for decades, centuries even, after she was gone. Well, ultimately, she failed in that aspiration, but that does not detract from the accomplishment itself. Jessa Jessaru is, architecturally and religiously, a masterwork, equaled by few in the litany of great monuments of ancient Egypt. The second big element that comes through in the temple decoration is just how carefully Hatshepsut described her power. Although she was fond of grandstanding, like any ruler, and she glorified herself at every opportunity, she did also adapt to the unique political circumstances of her situation. So the artistic decoration of the temple incorporates a lot of references to Tutmose III, and to the legitimacy of Hatshepsut herself. This legitimacy was derived entirely from two sources, her family ancestry, which we've already covered, and secondly, the influence of the gods themselves. I think it's time to meet these gods, the ones who lived in Jesser Jesseru, and who gave Hatshepsut their stamp of approval. Hatshepsut's claim to power from Tutmose I could have fallen apart if anyone really sought to challenge her seriously, which is why the Queen King doubled down on her fiction and went straight to the top. Very soon, she was claiming legitimacy from two sources, Tutmose I and the King of the Gods, Amun-Ra himself. I guess it wasn't enough to create a political fiction around her father. That was open to challenge, at least in the gossipy circles of the nobility. And it didn't address the elephant in the room. Tutmose I had been succeeded by his son, Tutmose II, and he had been succeeded by his son, Tutmose III. There was a very clear line of male succession. Like it or not, Hatshepsut was an interloper in the expected progression of royal generations. So she needed another line of argument something no one could gainsay or argue. And who can argue with the will of a god? Only a priest, and, well, Hatshepsut had the priests of Amun-Ra in her pocket. Hell, she had been a priest herself once upon a time. So this, this was a golden idea. Legitimacy, direct from Amun, by virtue of nothing less than giving our favourite Queen King a completely reconstructed origin story. The tale that Hatshepsut told and inscribed on the walls of Jesser Jesseru was as follows. Amun-Ra, king of the gods, was actually her father. Not in a symbolic sense, her literal father, the one who had sired her and given her life, the one who wanted her to rule Egypt in his name as his living daughter and embodiment. The story goes that Amun-Ra decided he wanted Hatshepsut to be born. So, apparently, he took on the physical form and appearance of King Tutmose I. He came to the bedchamber of Hatshepsut's mother, Armosa, and then he... The English translator, Sir James Henry Breasted, displayed his adorable Victorian sensibilities in this next part, and for the term, had sex with her, wrote instead the Latin, coivit cum ea. But the gist is, Amun had sex with Armosa, and she became pregnant with the infant Hatshepsut. As Amun approached the queen, he, quote, caused that she should see him in his form of a god, when he came before her, she rejoiced at the sight of his beauty. His love passed into her limbs, which the fragrance of the god flooded. All his scents were from Punt. In other words, Amun was the best role in the hay you could imagine. Apparently he, quote, did all that he desired with her. The queen was filled with the divinity, and Hatshepsut's life began in the very best way possible. But that was not the end of the tale. According to Hatshepsut, her childhood was marked by her obvious excellence, her superiority to those around her. Quote, her majesty grew beyond everything. To look upon her was more beautiful than anything. She was like a god. Her form was like a god. 
She did everything as a god. Her splendor was like a god. Her majesty was a maiden, beautiful and blooming. She made her divine form to flourish, a favor of him that had fashioned her. Pretty standard stuff in many ways, but still quite interesting. What we do know about Hatshepsut's early life is, as I've said, fairly conventional. Her most important contribution to Egyptian society was the fact that she was made the god's wife of Amun by her father. Now this was an important post, but it still wasn't necessarily remarkable. She could have excelled in this position, and chances are she did. But we hear nothing about her being unusually gifted, or unusually splendid in the palace. As far as we can tell, Hatshepsut had been an ordinary little girl. But, of course, she was telling the version of the story. So, let's just go with what she says. As far as she was concerned, Hatshepsut was the bee's knees. Finally, the day came when Hatshepsut should take up her rightful inheritance, and her story milks this for all it's worth. Amun comes to the forefront and commands his daughter to take the throne of Egypt. Quote, her majesty journeyed to the north. There came her mother, Hathor, the patroness of Thebes, her father, Amun, the lord of Thebes, Atum, the lord of Heliopolis, and Montu, the lord of Thebes, Kanum, the lord of the cataract, all of the gods that are in Thebes, all the gods of the south and the north, they approached her. They brought all life and satisfaction with them. They exerted their protection behind her. One proceeded after another. They passed on behind her every day. Then they said to her, Welcome, daughter of Amun-Re. Thou hast seen thy administration in the land, and thou shalt set it in order. Thou shalt restore that which has gone to ruin. Thou shalt make thy monuments in this house. Thou shall pass through the land, and thou shalt embrace many countries. This sort of litany of praise is pretty common, especially in the New Kingdom, but Hatshepsut's is one of the most complete that survives, which is fortunate because the uniqueness of her situation means that people are the most curious to learn what she told about her own ascension. The fact that all the gods from south and north, and I've had to omit a few from the translation just because there are so many, the fact that they all come forward to praise her and to ask her to set Egypt in order really gives you a sense of how Hatshepsut was justifying her claim to power. She was a benevolent ruler who was going to restore the country. In her version of the tale, Egypt was perhaps still suffering under the depredations of the Hyksos, and she was going to finally fix the issue once and for all. The story of Hatshepsut's ascendancy and the gods' benevolent praises of her continues in some degree. And then finally, she comes to the political reality. In this scene, Tutmos I, standing in for her true father, Amun, praises the young princess and decides that she will now be the ruler. Quote, the dignitaries of the king, the nobles and the chief of the people hear this command for the advancement of the dignity of his daughter, the king of Upper and Lower Egypt, Ma'at Kare Hatshepsut, who lives forever. They kissed the earth at his feet when the royal word fell among them, they praised all the gods on behalf of the king of Upper and Lower Egypt, the I, who lives forever. They went forth, their mouths rejoiced, and they published his proclamation to them. All the people of all the dwellings of the court heard this. They came, their mouths rejoicing, and they proclaimed it beyond everything. They leaped, and they danced for the double joy of their hearts. That is one hell of a story, and I've only told part of it. For your interest, I have attached a complete rendition of it at the end of this episode. Suffice it to say, Hatshepsut put herself forward as a legitimate ruler in what might be the most comprehensive and detailed story ever put forward by a king of Egypt. 
Not since the days of Senusaret I, and the teachings of his father Amenemhat, had a king made such a public narrative spun to justify their power. Was it propaganda? Absolutely. It was a story unlike any other. And I have to say, I absolutely love everything about this tale. It's fantastic. It has all the detail and drama that you'd expect from an Egyptian political narrative. And while it sort of hints at the realities of court life and who you had to placate in order to come to power, the tailing of the tale is completely over the top and absurd. It styles everything as an absolutely grandiose celebration of Hatshepsut. Everything from her childhood to her coronation is a moment of great celebration. Hell, even her conception is a moment of great drama and flowery language. As far as translating it goes, it might actually be one of my favourite texts that I've ever worked on. And I have to say, I just love every element of that story. The story of Hatshepsut's conception, childhood and ascension was the centrepiece of the temple of Jesser Jesseru. In some ways, it's kind of a big part of the temple's reason for being. As a monument to Amun-Ra and to Hatshepsut herself, the temple is built around the relationship between these two individuals, and the legitimacy which came from one to the other. Images of the Queen King kneeling before Amun-Ra give the narrative some visual confirmation as well. In these artistic works, she is depicted as a man. If you did not know her to be a woman, you would think that it was any old king. Kneeling on the floor of a gazebo, in which the great king of the gods is enthroned, Hatshepsut faces outward. It looks as if Amun is presenting her to the world, which is, of course, exactly the idea. In front of the pair, the god's great wife, Amunet, makes an offering to the new king. Amunet holds a long scepter, at the tip of which is the symbol of the Ankh, life. Amunet thus gives life to Hatshepsut, ensuring that she will live forever with the god's blessing. The coronation is performed by both Amun and Amunet, and their hands reach out to place the crown atop her head. Notably, Tutmose III is nowhere to be found in this scene. It's all about Hatshepsut. As I've said, the queen played it fast and loose with historical reality. Like many kings before her, the story was hers to tell, and she made it according to her needs. So, she styled herself as a child of the gods, and she presented herself as an upholder of ma'at, order, according to her own definition of that concept. Questions of daily relationships and political intrigue were left out of her propaganda, as you'd expect, and the emphasis was forever on the queen as a divinely prophesied leader, a special case among the rulers. She was a figure of absolute majesty, and the temple of Jesser Jesseru was the centerpiece of that story. You may have noticed we haven't talked about the architecture of the temple itself just yet. Don't worry, we're going to get into that next episode. But for now, I really wanted to focus on the artistic works that Hatshepsut was putting forward, because they're so important to understanding her rule from its beginnings. The Temple of Jesser Jesseru really was Hatshepsut's major contribution to the Egyptian political, religious, and monumental landscape. So naturally, she put a lot of energy into making sure that it told the story that she wanted it to tell. There were a couple of little blips in this process, and we're going to get into that in future. For now, the Temple of Jesser Jesseru, or at least the tiny part that we have picked apart in this episode, was the centerpiece of Hatshepsut's early ambitions. But there was more to come, as Hatshepsut now put into motion her second great project. This project was going to be a magnificent return to the golden days of Egyptian splendour. You see, Hatshepsut was launching an expedition, an immense undertaking, to bring the mythical land of Punt, 
back into the Egyptian sphere. Ships were being built, the king was making plans, and as regnal year 8 began, the project really started. My apologies for the delay in producing this episode due to my illness. The Egyptian History Podcast will be back very shortly with episode 63, telling the story of Hatshepsut's great expedition to Punt, one of her most important accomplishments, and one of her most celebrated. And now, a special announcement. The podcast is about to start its very first competition. In order to enter this competition, all you need to do is leave a review on iTunes. We'll then mix up the names in a hat, draw three winners, and you'll get a special prize. The official announcement and terms will come out very shortly, but if you want to get ahead on the competition, simply head on over to iTunes and leave us a review. Please be honest, we're not going to disqualify you just because you have a negative opinion of the show, although I hope if you're listening, you do like it in some capacity. Anyways, stay tuned for the competition announcement, leave us a review on iTunes, and enjoy your week. Thanks. History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History, the French Revolution is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. From a revolution of hope and liberty to the infamous reign of terror, you can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So search for the French Revolution today.